0: And there are a lot of subtopics inside the Torah portion of Matzot. and must say, there's obviously the the, the 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 vow issues. They have the issues discussing um, uh, the 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 women as far as view, the the conquering women. You know, also the issues regarding the killer, the manslayer, and of course the tribal separation between the north, the sorry, the east, the west tribes, and obviously the tribal uh, intertribal marriage. A lot of different topics. They are each of themselves worthy of their own conversation. So we're covering these things on a more grander scale, greater topic level. So in general, uh, we have obviously starting out with the vows themselves, the concept of vows. Now, I'm not going to cover all different types of vows being listed here. There's obviously the oaths, there's the vows, there's the, the prohibitions, yada, yada. You can cover all those. Other Torah portions have talked about them in the past. They're recorded on, on Halal's website, all different types and forms of vows. Because in English, we have like two kinds. In Hebrew, they have like three or four. So different kinds of vows which we don't, we don't think about the same way. Um, general rule, though, vow or oath. You can't have a vow or an oath or make one that makes you or makes someone else break the Torah. Blanket rule. Uh, it, it covers all the way. So I can't make a vow that requires me to break the Torah to, to fulfill it. Now I can make a vow as far as prohibiting myself from doing something, which is fine, but when breaking or commanding someone to, to, break, the, to break the Torah, you can't do that. Uh, so that, that that's a general rule for almost every vow you can imagine. There are obviously some people who question that with Jephthah. We will discuss that today. It's beyond our scope of, of conversation. but. Overall, when it comes to, uh, to, to to vows in general, so uh, there's some rules here regarding vows and how they're going to work. And there's a couple of examples we have inside of our Torah, as well as in the the, the Tanakh that covers events that we have for vows. Uh, for example, we typically don't really think about vows being super, super important. We think, of, well, I, I made this promise, made this agreement, and I broke it. I didn't mean to, but it happens. You know, Oh, well, it move on. Now, co- contrast that to Joshua chapter 9. So, come covered Joshua chapter 9. We didn't read it today, of course. But the topic, Those I'll, I'll remind your storyline. So, Joshua and the people are conquering Canaan. The Gibeonites conspire together and disguise themselves. People from like a faraway land. And they, they have like old food and old wineskins to come to, to Joshua say, Hey, we're from this far away land. We're not telling you what the name of the land is, but it's far, far away. You won't know about it, but it's far away. <laughs> and and we agree to, to, to not fight each other. And Josh said, oh, oh, okay, sure, that's fine. Great idea. Uh, as long as it's good to have allies, they find out that oh, they're like five miles away from them or thereabouts. So they find out three days later, the Gibeonites had lied and they had violated this, 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 this oath requirement because they had deceived them. Now, this is where Christianity and Judaism break paths. In Judaism, they say, No, Joshua had full rights to execute all of them because they made a vow based on a deceitful claim. In Christianity, no, they made a rule, made an agreement, this is, our, this is our verbal agreement, you cannot break it. Joshua, clearly to deny, agreed with the Christian philosophy, says, no, I made an agreement even though I was deceived the process, I made the agreement, therefore I'm held to it. And so they had to hold to it. So Joshua actually supports, against Akiba's viewpoint, his his life, his his, his, his God-fearing life, said, no, the Christian viewpoint is actually correct in how Joshua to is recorded. It's interesting because he's a male. He's, he's not allowed to back out of a, of a vow. In our Torah portion, he says that women can under certain circumstances. Their, their, their fathers can back them out once father hears about it and he says something, hey, you, you shouldn't have, should have said. Or if they made a vow with the way it's worded prior to marriage, when their husband finds out about it, he marries her and says, now I'm going to avoid all these vows you did previously. Like for example, she made a vow to marry, to marry another guy and he does it. Nope. <coughs> Well, this, maybe that's what it said. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm voiding that guy over there. He's not your husband. I am. That's an example of a vow he can, he can, he can overrule. Um, it also, and then it, the, the third category for her getting out of vows is if she makes them while she's in her, father's ha- or her husband's house, husband, once he hears about it, can overrule it. If he overrules it late, obviously, he's guilty of any vow requirements. The vows have penalties and such that go with those vows if you fail to do them. Men don't usually get that option. Boys, they only really account for boys, but for men, don't have that option. Yes, well, that's great for the girls. At least they have some way of getting out of some some foolish mistakes. But guys make foolish mistakes too. <laughs> we say dumb stuff all the time. Our mouths are really coming for it. And Messiah pointed out everything that you say, everything every comment you say, you'll be have account for every idle word in your mouth. You make account for. So God will make you account for everything you say. Now, well, what do we do? How do we handle this? Now, and obviously in Deuteronomy 23, uh, which we'll cover today. Obviously it's later on in a few, a few weeks from now. And also Ecclesiastes 5 discussed this topic of vows. They said that, that, when you, you if you make a vow, you're held to it. There's no way of getting out of it per se. I say no way. We'll discuss that there is one method, which we'll talk about in a minute. But if you make a vow as a male, you're required to hold it. Obviously you can't make a vow that breaks the Torah, but if you make a vow as a male, you have to hold it, regardless of even if it costs your personal life. To fulfill the vow. You know, choice matter. You have to, you fill it. If you choose not to, your life is God's will to take. It, it's, it's, it's justified to take and you're guilty because you screwed the vow up. It's your, your mistake. You don't make those types of vows. So it's important not to make idle words or idle comments. Like, you know, I swear to God, da, 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 You know, you don't do that because those, those are obviously fake vows. What was that? Oh, the, like, like Jephthah. The first person that I'm at, the first thing, sorry, that comes to greet me at my house, I'll offer to God. Well, okay, there's a problem. You can't discuss that. You can't, you can't do those types of things that caused you to break the vow or break the God's uh, God's commandments, but you have a value that you're still held to. If you fail to do it, it's your life that is sacrificed. So, Yephthah, the proper solution would have been if, if, if assuming I realize it's a controversial topic with Yephthah and his daughter, people disagree with what actually happened and didn't happen. But assuming, we have a big assumption here, that the Christian viewpoint, which is he killed her, that's not the Jewish viewpoint, but it's Christian viewpoint, he killed her, offered her some burn sacrifice or whatever, which is crazy, but we'll discuss that in a minute later. Um, if he couldn't fulfill it, the obligation is himself to offer himself up. He dies, commits suicide, whatever. That's the, that's the correct solution for a value made, something to, to break God's law. Now, Jewish viewpoint does not view it that way they do not view her as, act, as an acted like burned sacrifice because she didn't mourn her life; she mourned her virginity, which means she can't get married. That's what she was upset about, and her being upset that she couldn't get married wasn't, "Oh, I'm going to die." No, it was, "Oh no, I don't get to have, I don't, I don't get to have a husband." Because in Judaism, the offering of her would be to she works a temple the rest of her natural life. No marriage, no nothing. You, you are, you are this cinderella type of scenario you're going to work enslaved or you die and that's that's your that's your life that's how the jewish viewpoint looks at that particular vow i'm going through this relatively quickly because all these topics including the women with the war is also based on vows i will get there in a minute so all your vows you have to do the, no no exceptions except there is one caveat which i like this caveat because i love caveats we'll get the oh well first way i get there there are several things in the new testament all talk about vows so book of acts for example a book of acts chapter five believe a famous chapter with the uh i forgot ananias and sophria whatever her name was that the couple that sold their stuff say here's all because they wanted the, the fame and the glory of how the giving their stuff to, the, to the, the 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 people of of the disciples so the stuff show up and here's all this stuff how great how wonderful we're, we're giving these great things and then Peter said, um, dude, this is not what you sold it for. And they both dropped dead in their own respective moments in time. So they made a vow. And made it appear that this is what they're doing. They failed to fulfill the vow, just like Joshua 9 would have failed to fulfill the vow if he broke it by killing the Gibeonites. They broke their vow and it cost them their life. How valuable or how important does God hold our vows? Extremely high. It's death penalty to fail them. So, it's really critical to not let idle words come out of our mouths because our life is on the line. It's not just our reputation, it's our own personal lives. Now, we also have the same event or a similar variation in Acts 23, with the 40 men who claimed they would not eat or drink to the killed Paul. They made vows not to eat or drink to the killed Paul. Well, guess what? Paul didn't kill him. So, by law, by Jewish law, sorry, by, 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 by Torah law, their death is required. They can't eat or drink until for forever. That's it, their death. Now, did they actually die? We don't really know. They could obviously find some as a Jewish methodology of, well, they were deceived somehow, therefore the vow doesn't apply, blah, 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 which is what Akiva always argued. But that's, again, garbage according to our Tanakh. So it does not is not perm- not permissible. You break a vow, you are sub- you are required by the full oath of the vow. It, obviously, it makes it uh, expands the concept that Messiah pointed out. you yes, you yes, you know, as you know. Don't swear. Now, is it is it illegal to swear? No, of course not. Isaiah has lots of examples of swearing by God's name. That's nothing problem. It's illegal to break what you swore. That's the problem. So Messiah says, "Hey, yes, you're yes, knows you know." Don't deviate from those things because you can't make heaven do anything. It's, it's all your own words. But if you try to make it swear by heaven or by God or by whatever you want to say, all those—if there's any slight chance of your failure, your death is on the line. That's not what we want. Obviously, we don't want those types of things on the line. So our vows are really important. It's important we fulfill them, make sure them, sure that, that that they work and they're consistent. So. Hence, James 4, now we stopped in verse 12, but 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, discuss additional that, hey, when you talk about something, I'm going to do something. He says, he points out, put the caveat in there, God willing, I'll do da 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 the fill out the blank. If God permits it, I'll do whatever, whatever, fill out the blank. He's putting a caveat, hey, check those words. I put yourself in mental state that I don't have the power to fill this vow. It requires God to fill it for me. Therefore, it's God's will if it gets fulfilled or not. It's important we understand vows and the value of them and the oaths that we get. Now, here's the caveat, meaning or the loophole or how you want to word it, the way of getting out of a vow. So in Proverbs 6, this is how guys can get out of a vow. Six, the first uh, what, five verses, I'll talk about this topic. Getting out of a vow, if you're a male, you don't have the option, the female option of, hey, have either you know, get married or have your, whatever, some, some way of getting out of it. The male has another alternate choice. It's called begging. Begging and begging and begging. So Proverbs 6 verses 1 through 5 discuss this topic that if you are assured you mean you've made a vow a agree with somebody, you have a requirement to fulfill that. If you can't, you go to them on your hands and knees and beg and beg and beg. So you bring yourself down super, super low to get yourself out of this vow. And that's how we get out of vows for men. So men have to humble themselves as low as possible by begging. grovel At the lowest possible end, please, 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 I screwed up royally, I I really messed up, I got to get out of this somehow. That's the only way in which you get out of vow for males in the case of what you just discussed in Proverbs 6. So that's the methodology for males to get out. Now, is the person you're begging obligated to grant your beg? No. <laughs> and strictly by their mercy, they grant you what you're begging. But that's where you're at for males when you beg. You, that's your position. Now, let's put this to where we just read with the apostle Saul, or Paul. Before he was Paul, he was Saul. So, Shaul, You pronounce know, his name, make a difference to me. Um, in his scenario, he was a killer. Now, not just any old killer. He killed people, yes, a murderer. But... He also made these, these contractual agreements with the, San, with, the with the high priest of his day to get these people to bring them to, to, to Israel to try and kill that, to trial them and kill them. That is a vow. Yes, a written vow. So he has a written vow. To, written vow that Saul was under. And what happens? If you fail to do written vow, it's your life on the line. It's, it's not just word. It's actually written down because he has these documents to the, the order to get these people arrested in order to bring them to, to Jerusalem to kill them. So what did, what did Messiah do? Did he kill Saul? In a manner of speaking, spiritually, yes, but not physically. He struck him with blindness and completely brought him down at the lowest point to where Saul is at the point of humbling himself and begging for forgiveness, the form he's uh, not eating, fasting, the whole process. I, I, I've, I've committed murder. on All these instances, I am obligated to do all these horrible things which I've done. Now, what do I do? He essentially is begging Messiah's forgiveness. So he's doing through his humbling. And so, what happened? Did he get it? Yes, he got it. Did it cost him his life? Not physically, change his name, of course. Didn't cost him his life though. So what? He, so, so there was a way out of vows. Yes. You beg, and the person who you are subject to is the individual who can get you out of the vow. They can release you from this vow that you've made. So it cost him his old life. In the matter of speaking, a type of life was cost. It was his old way of life, his old thinking, his old, everything about him, his history, his contracts. Yeah. So it costs those things, but that's how Shaul or Saul, Apostle Paul, gets out of his vows that Messiah brings him down very, very, very low. The point of he's not eating or drinking because that obviously would humble him to kill him eventually. And of course, that vow process is then released. That's a good thing. Now, it's helpful. Now, what I want to bring up to your your attention here is what sounds like a non-related topic, but actually it's the same topic of vow. So, you notice it goes from this whole vow topic into this, okay, now let's go kill the Midianites. Let's murder a bunch of women and, and well, women. There actually were men, men, women, and children. It sounds like it's a new topic, but it's not. It just sounds that way. So, I'm going to erase this partially, because this topic of this vow, what is a vow essentially? It's what you say. It's your word. It's your agreements. What you, I will do this or I won't do that. Uh, that. That's what a vow is. It's making an agreement. It's usually, obviously, in God's name, but the, the, him being a witness. The vow is an agreement a contractual agreement in the case of israel they made a contractual agreement at mount sinai they told after the ten candidates were given they told moses hey god's scary don't like him well we like him but you know what i mean he's more afraid of him so uh we'll do whatever he says no questions asked but you go to god and we'll we'll relay the information that was a vow they made agreement they'll agree with whatever god says i'll do now con bring that up to some some people who who God said wipe them out, you know Amalek. Remember those guys? The other guys who who, who they, they they when they were coming out of Egypt. I think it's like chapter um Exodus. It was like fifteen or sixteen. Did I write that down? I don't know if I wrote it down or not. Amalek. Oops. Let's see. Amalek was. Uh, I don't think I wrote down the chapter where it is. It's Exodus. That doesn't matter. Amalek. Amalek winds up attacking terrible K. Attacking the Israelites that came out of Egypt as they were traveling along the way to get to Mount Sinai. And God says, hey, make an agreement. When the time comes, we're going to kill off and wipe out all of Amalek. Which includes the women, children, animals, Nothing is left over. All living things are slaughtered by for Amalek. It gets killed off and destroyed. And that is a group God is saying, this you will do. We find out later that King Saul didn't. He failed at some of the stuff and kept a lot of things and he lost his kingdom as a result. Well, we also have this story now, which we just read was, was Midian. Now, that's not necessarily you can argue to devour or not, but God said you will do this. Therefore, you're obligated to do this. So He attacks and and, and destroys Midian. Now, to give you an example, I'm going to draw a brief map here. I should have put Midian, the word Midian, somewhere else. So we have Israel, Dead Sea, you know, Carmel, and then we have the Sinai Peninsula. It just kind of goes like this, and way up there. He said, "Okay, yeah, let's it's off the screen." No, that's right. It's down south. So. We have um, uh, Moab, which is like hanging out in this area. That's a M. Midian's way down here. They're way near the bottom. You can't even see my screen, can you? Here. Oh, oh, move the camera down. That would help. Yeah, that works. Midian. Israel does not get to inherit Midian's territory. That's not part of their ownership. But, so they're hanging out here near Jericho, across, across it's uh, about this spot, roughly territory. They're out here near, near, near the cross of Jordan, or about to cross Jordan to, to, uh, to Canaan, and they send 12,000 guys way down south to attack Midian, which is not part of their territory. They don't get to inherit it, they don't get to own it, nothing of the sort. So they get to do it all, do the destruction, and then eva- evacuate. Midian is not their ownership. They don't get to keep it. So in this process of Midian attacking these Midianites, obviously they saved the the women, the children, because it's not in human nature to kill people who aren't attacking you. It just isn't. But remember, ancient war is brutal. It is brutal. It is not like our modern day, oh, we just kill the guy shooting us and the guy next to him, we leave him alone. None of that stuff. They kill everything because everything can kill you. And so... The Midianites—they they were obviously part of this whole destruction process, as far as the Israelites, when it came to the the Pior. But in this process of killing the Midianites, they left ruler alive. But the agreement is to kill Midian. Now I have this 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 this, this strange scenario, which where our vows come in. So God said, Amalek—we'll discuss Amalek later, because he kills them all off by. Uh, and King Saul's time. the is destroyed or mostly destroyed now. The British just wiped out for, as, as a people group. They were just destroyed. Now, here's my question for you. Not to have to answer this, but just think about it in your head. So I have a Midianite. I can kill these men, women, children, but the girls I leave alone. What is the purpose of letting them live? Now, think about it. So the men are all killed off. They bring the, 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 the old women, they marry, all these three people, and Moses no, no, kill them all off. You should kill them all off in the process. You can only the young girls, which is not known a man, which means you're probably in the whole, you know, from zero up to probably in the 12, 13, 14 ish range, ballpark girls are left alive. The rest of them are all slaughtered or potentially slaughtered, depending on what scenario, scenario, scenario happens to be. So think about this. What is the purpose of these girls? What are they going to grow up to do? Dominantly, you don't think they grow up to, to, to be married. That's the event should they get married. And who's marrying them? The people who captured them. The Israelites, the males, typically. Now, their exact age, it may take 5, 10, 15 years, how long is it going to be before they're old enough to marry. It doesn't make a difference. But that's their general function. This is contradictory to our Torah. I love contradictions. It's great. <laughs> So we have lots of passages of Torah that this is, that this is prohibited. You're marrying a non-Israelite, a pagan wife. That's what she would wind up being. So the, 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 these questions arise. We have lots of passages of Torah prohibits such activity, uh, such as, uh, in the case of Deuteronomy chapter seven, discuss this topic. They'll make your, your sons will deviate. This is the first four verses will deviate from following God. We also have in the case of Deuteronomy 23, Moab and Ammon are not permitted to be in, in, in the house of God, in the congregation, because they are contaminant pagan people. And they did not greet you. I also have Deuteronomy 21, the captive. Well, why can you marry a captive, but you can't marry them in Deuteronomy 7? You can't do it, but Deuteronomy 21, you can. What, why does a Torah have these contradictory statements? We also have the entire, almost most, like three chapters long in the book of Ezra explicitly covering this exact topic. It's having the problem that the Israelites married a bunch of pagan women, had children with them as saying, you can't do this. These are not Israelites. You can't marry them. And so through the entire congregation of all during Ezra's time, Nehemiah records all such thirteen. So 13, they, they, they evaluate, evaluate every single person, interview all of them, find out who's married to who, to what, all the females who are not Israelites, divorced children, women sent off on your own, go away. That's pretty harsh right? Tough scenario. But that's where we're going. So, we have this, these contradictory scenarios. What's happening? Why are they contradictory? We have Torah examples, 7, you can't do it. 21, you can. Ezra, 9 and 10, you can't. Why is it going back and forth? Well, contradictory things are the great things we learn about where we have clarifications and depth of understanding. So, even though they destroyed Midianites, they saved some women, and I don't know what Eliezer, the priest, could do for 32 girls. They're providing for 32 girls. Little girls, in your household. It, it could be could adoption, a could because yeah, there's thousands, there's thousands and thousands of girls here. It's possible. Out they could be adopted out or sent sent out to different families. It's possible. Yeah, it's it difference between taking women. Oh right, right, right. So 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 there's pointing out examples here. They're pointing out that you guys can't hear in the, in the audio, but. Is that there's, there's 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 differences between someone who's already been married, their, how they're raised, their thought process, their activities versus those who have not been married. There's differences. I totally agree with that. That's not a problem. So our question being, we have these scenarios, but what type of person? So we have a great king Solomon, who discusses this topic in more uh, metaphorical terms. Is a proper word. So the first proverbs. The first one through nine the first nine chapters there's periodic char- category a so character that shows up in proverbs that character is wisdom which is personified as a woman or a wife now in that personification it points out the great intense value importance of this particular w- wisdom this w- w- with the values to pursue them to hold on to them hold them dear to you very close throughout your whole life now we also have the wicked individual or the harlot which obviously is the wicked woman, that it also periodically shows up with inside the book of Proverbs, the first five chapters, or nine chapters, sorry. So, Solomon's categorizing these two different types of women. Now, we can point out, well, if he's categorizing two types of women we're discussing, two types of categories we're discussing, then what kind of woman are you looking for as a man? Well, Solomon points out you're looking for this one, the the wise woman, the wisdom. You're looking for that type of person, a valuable individual. Obviously wisdom isn't necessarily have to be female. The point is he's personifying it as a female. So we're dealing with this this scenario. Well, we can learn from this and that the type of person these little girls shh, little triangles <laughs> are supposed to grow up to be. Oh my camera Oh, thank you. It's off my camera. These little girls of uh, thousands of girls coming on here. What is the intent for them? To be raised in what category? Wisdom. That's the intent. That's the purpose behind them. They haven't known a man, they, they don't have the experience of their own background. The idea is to re educate, re raise them in a wise woman category. Then, when they get married, what are they? Wise women. <laughs> That's what you'd want. You want your sister to marry them. That's the intent or the purpose. So, even though they come from a pagan background, meaning a non Israelite background, that's not the relevant component. And now I say this in Proverbs 1 through 9. This isn't just strike. this is not, I only to females. We have a great example of a guy I really, really like in our Bible, Caleb. Now, Caleb is a Kenazite. Now, Kenaz is obviously recorded in, uh, I think it's Genesis. Uh, I forgot the chapter exactly. But Caleb, the Kenazite. Kenazite. I did say it's spelled Kenazite close enough. I'm Caleb or Caleb's from Kenazite. He's Kenazite. He, but Kenaz, by definition, is not actually Israelite. He's not from the tribes of Israel. But who is the leader of the tribe of Judah? Caleb. He's a prominent player. He's bigger. He's, he's in charge of the whole tribe. So, but he's a pagan, meaning he comes from a pagan background, non-Israel background. So is it a racial detail that we're dealing with here, I mean, or or is it just the type of person? Well, Caleb, of all the people that Moses brought out of, out of Egypt, amongst him and Joshua, is it the only two guys that are actually worth much? So clearly, the value of the person is what God's looking for. So whether it's Caleb the Kenazite who winds up being in charge of all of Judah, he winds up being in charge of them; he's in charge of the whole tribe, or whether it's these girls from a uh, familian it's the character that matters it's the value of the individual that matters so god didn't say caleb you're not israelite you're not even jewish you're not from the tribe of Judah." i don't care you got the whole tribe is yours that's pretty impressive a picture of adoption you're right it is it you're absolutely right you're right exactly it's a picture of adoption which we have in ezekiel the same concept Ezekiel 47 i think it is um or 48 whatever it is ezekiel discusses t- 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 the same topic of being adopted in because your history, your background is one thing, who you are isn't the same as your background, right? They did get leave Egypt, right. And dwell with and live yeah, they grew up with Israel in those forty years of wilderness, at least for Caleb did. The girls themselves, the Midianite, they I don't know what their parents or moms and dads were like, but they themselves would have now grown up or they'd start growing up with inside of Israel as a as a group, as a as a as a, as a culture or a cultural change. Hence, this is the this is the value of these details. Now, I say these all related to vows because what is the agreement these girls are going to grow up to be like? They're making agreement because what's their alternative choice? By the way, if the girl says, let's say she's a twelve-year-old girl, I ain't gonna do this. Go to hell, whatever. What's the solution? Well, here's a sword. Whack. Next, <laughs> you, you make your choice, right? So, in case you make a decision. So, these girls, to, in order to live through this process, what are they doing? They're going to make their agreements. And you know, they, they, they tell what have to be Yeah, you know, what's the alternative option? They're going to make their agreements to, to, to change their culture, their way of life. In order to live, they're making a vow of their own, which is also a similar vow. So, they're going to be held to it. The consequence of their failure to the vow, what is it? Death. They would not be held. They'd, be, they'd be dead. So, the vow, the agreement is everything to our God. It's really not everything. It's everything to what we, how our relationship with God is, it's based on what we agree to do, our honesty. Now, we read part of chapter Jeremiah chapter 2. Now Jeremiah chapter 2, that's not quite sufficient. The whole, his whole first two sermons, the first like 10 chapters, whatever, Jeremiah talks about trustworthiness of the people of Israel. So their words say one thing, but their actions don't match. So, and God points out, if you can find one human being in all Jerusalem that is a trustworthy or honest human being, just between person to person, not between person to God, but to person, uh, he'll spare the whole city. And Jeremiah searched and said, I can't find one, not one human being in all Jerusalem. And God said, Yep, you won't, <laughs> no, there aren't any. So it, it tells you that, that your 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 honesty, your vows are are what your 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 trustworthiness is. What you say, you'll do what you say. So these are all based upon this concept. Now we have this, so the, hence the these women, this 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 trust with the women, the trust of what you what you say. Your words are all they're all based on what you say. What you will do, what you say you'll do. This expands this whole this whole section expands, which I like this part. I like all these parts, but this one another part I like uh, the tribal separation. So we have I'll draw map up back up here again close enough um we have obviously we have gad which is i think is uh, up here you know gad's out in the middle gad ain't this spot reuben gets down here Our i can't spell reuben and then we have one half of manasseh up here roughly in the gilead territory and they get these you know these chunks of, of of territory and land and everybody else you know hangs out in in canaan you'll notice in this storyline which this is a metaphorical application so don't be too confused by literalness when you deal with metaphors. So in this application, Reuben and Gad both approach Moses saying, Hey, we've been, we've conquered Og's territory. We conquered Sihon's territory. It's really cool. We like it. We'll live here. We go back and forth. Moses saying, No, no, no. It's yes. Yeah, Don't worry. We'll fight. Whatever. Back and forth. We're not going to go those details. I'm going to bring one thing to your attention. Did Manasseh approach Moses? No. They asked for territory over there? No. Were well, they even part of the conversation? No. What is Moses doing? Why would he bring half of Manasseh, divide the tribe in half, so half of them up on Gad and Reuben's side and the half stay over in Canaan's side? What's up your sleeve, Moses? Vows are up your sleeve. That's what's up it. What's Manasseh's history? Who is he? Who was Manasseh? Manasseh's son of Joseph. And what, it, what, it, what it just did, what did, what did Joseph do? Why do you name him Manasseh? It means because God made me forget. I forgot my past to forget it, to not remember. I've, I'm restating. I'm starting over again. I have no history of the past. It's gone. So what's Moses doing? Gad, Reuben, you have, you have a value making. Guess what? Manasseh on your side. Don't forget. Let's play on Manasseh's name. It's play on the whole tribe's name. Then no matter what happens, Gad and Reuben, you don't get to forget your vow. You are making this agreement. So Manasseh, I'm dividing it halfway. You and halfway here. What a big M. For Manasseh, i just to, to write. So Manasseh is a category that one side does not forget about the other side's agreement, and vice versa. They don't. They don't. They, they they're taking their agreement, which a play on Manasseh's name, which is really cool. They say you're making this agreement. You're not gonna gonna, gonna forget. I'm, I'm taking these two tribes, this one tribe, and I'm going to attach them to you on both sides. So both sides, you have this permanent record. Manasseh is yours. Guess what? Your vow will hold. Because Moses is not going to be alive anymore. He'd be dead. Because he'd be around to, to, to enforce it. He doesn't know how long Joshua's going to live either. Who knows how long they're all going to live? Well, Manasseh, that's the play That's a metaphor, play on Manasseh's words. Now, I say the play out of word because even though Joseph got this whole forgotten thing from Manasseh, that's how, he got his, that's how Manasseh got his name, what was the agreement Joseph made with his brothers? I'll take care of you. <laughs> and what does that mean? Joseph's making an agreement with his brothers when they came out of Egypt. I'm going to take care of you. And what happened? He took care of them. Even after uh, 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 Jacob dies, All all brothers say, oh no, he's going to forget his agreement. She says, no, 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 no. I don't forget anything. I'm going to take care of you. You're fine. You're safe. No problems. The agreement, your verbal avow, you're agreeing to do something, God will hold you to it. And of course, in Moses' case, Gadaree, when you failed to do so, mind you, he didn't say Manasseh failure. He said, so Gadaree, but if you fail to do so, then you'll be moved over here with the rest of the tribes. Now, I do realize Manasseh has Gilead, the man, Gilead, and it who was a, known for his... Military strength and, and and here, which they they, they there's other there's other extra biblical stories about some of those men, and I'm not sure what those exact men are. These the descendants who did a few things and very ruthless, brutal uh, warriors. But that's a different that that's a different topic. The point being that Manasseh being divided, who wasn't part of the regional agreement, no part of the converse, conversations, no negotiation whatsoever. Moses tacks on he splits them, which seems odd because Manasseh's like, hey, why am I getting a split? There's there's a, there's a re- no rival reason for that. Because of his name, you will not forget. You made agreement you will not forget, which is pretty cool on his name. It's, it's, just, it's, just, it's a play on Hebrew words. It's, it's funny. To me, it's funny. All this stuff is based on vows, what you're agreeing to do, what you're agreeing to say, both in how you do with the women, children, how you deal with God, how you deal with each other, deal with tribes. Everything's based on what you say, what you do, because no idle word will be forgotten by our God. And forget anything. It's all there. I think we say it out of, our, out of our mouths. He'll make an account for every single one of them. I how much time we got left? I have, ooh, good. 10 minutes. Perfect. So, uh, I'm going to jump to a, a portion in Marseille, which is cities of refuge. Additional vows. So, this doesn't seem like vows, but it really is because it's all based on agreements. So, our cities of refuge, they have six of them that are going to be given. Now, Deuteronomy, I forget what chapter it is talks more about these cities of refuge and is Israel- what levite cities and towns such you get more details later on about those topics but our vows are really important what we say we do we'll do city of refuge you got obviously six cities of refuge and they, they, they divided up there's three on the west side and three on the east side of how jordan is divided up the principle of the city of refuge is a killer a manslayer right man killer if he kills somebody either intentionally or by accident, he has to hit one of these three cities of refuge. The idea is that he goes to the refuge and then he winds up being put on trial. They investigate. Did he kill somebody on purpose, accident, blah, 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 figure it all out. If it's on purpose, he's killed. If it's on accident, he has to hang out in the city of refuge till the high priest dies or until and then he can go home. He can't, he can't get out of the, the, the penalty, you know, the method because every killing, has to have blood that offers to fix it. So, whether it's his own because he's a murderer or it's high priest because it was an accident. Either way, somebody's blood gets spilled. I and mean, what happens? Blood spills in order to fix a murder. But what is the basic principle that this man killer has to trust in when he's fleeing to these cities? What's he doing? He's trusting something, isn't he? He's, he, he yep, he's, trusting, he's, he's, he's evoking the law. He's making you guys have a law. And you're not going to throw me outside the city's boundary. <laughs> and against the law, exactly. Because he's evoking their agreement. And their agreement is part of their vows. It's how you treat other people. And so he is trusting the trustworthiness of the individuals inside the city. And anybody along the road getting to the city. Like for us, I thought I'd say, oh no, he's Hold him down, hold him down. He's not going to hold him down to pin him, see where he gets into the man so I can catch up. He's trusting the, vo- the 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 honesty and trustworthiness of the individuals. So even the man killer slayer person, he's also even though, even if he's a killer, he could be a, a, a axe murderer, whatever, whatever chainsaw mass, Texas massacre. Uh, he could be that kind of person. But the point being that he's trusting based on the agreements the Israelites made, they will not violate the agreement they made with God. That's also a heavy trust issue. But I'm a murderer. Let's let's say I did it on purpose. I'm a killer. I deserve to die, but I'm going to trust nobody here is going to kill me till I get a trial. And I get to run the city refuge. I hope I get there before somebody else catches me. I get to the refuge. I'm trusting them, the Levite cities, that they'll say, yeah, we may think you're guilty of sin, but we're not going to do anything until a trial takes place and we prove it. That's a heavy trust issue. Now, hopefully, if, Obviously, I'm not a, a an axe murderer, but hopefully if the killer was an accident it will get off eventually. Now these are all trust issues. And now here's the next part of it. So let's pretend it was an accident. The guy accidentally killed him. Okay, he dies. He goes to trial. It was an accident. It ruled the accident. Uh, the high priest dies ten years later. What's the man killer now going to trust in? They're going to let him go, and the person who wanted him dead won't kill him. He did his time. He paid his penalty. He's trusting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he yeah, get the time, but he's trusting again the vow of the of the Avenger that his agreement he will not violate the agreement that he's made with God. These are all trust issues. They're all based on how I'm trusting you. I'm I make agreements. I'm I'm depending upon your you will hold to your agreement. I hold to mine, and that's how societies work: is to trust one another. If we fail to do so. Well, we were just barbarians and murderers. We're not worth much. So these vows, even the even the man's killer process, and, the, and however long the high priest lives or dies, it's all based on trust. We trust the person who we're dealing with will obey the law according to the group that they did. I do realize when always obey, laws people do crazy stuff, the dumb stuff too. But that's that's not the point. The boys point are all based upon trust. It's everything's based upon trust. So manslaughter, even though he's a human be killer, is also based on trust. Now we have the next agreement. Again, this whole these whole two sections are all about what you say, you do what you say. So this next part of it, we also have Zalofahad's daughters. It's also based on a trust issue, a vow, agreement. So Zalofahad. Uh, uh, I don't know how to spell the guy's name. It's really long. Okay, whatever. He had five daughters. Uh, I'll just put a deeks I'm a bad speller. Five daughters. So, five daughters, and they all have this agreement. Okay, we get to inherit the land because we had no sons. He had no no sons with it. And it was just fine, not a problem. But Zalofa had his brothers, family, whatever, say, hey, um, this is an inherent mo- uh, a problem here. So, these girls, let's say they married Benjamin, Ben, or Ben, then who owns the land? It goes to the husband. But now the wrong tribe. So Lilithad's the daughters, they obviously made the agreement, okay, we'll marry with them so our, our family's tribe, so it stays within Manasseh's possession at all times, which is all great and fine. What does that tell you about the responsibility of a daughter in the future, like later on, after Lilithad's daughters are all dead? What is your responsibility as a daughter to your father's household? Well, you ha- if it comes upon you hey, I may really, really like this really cute guy over there in the other tribe, but who cares? You, you have an agreement you have you, you this is another a vow an agreement i will do this because it wasn't because i was born that way oh yay i always want to do this no i found out my dad died he had no sons my job is my agreement is as a daughter this is what it is i'm agreeing to it and i'll stick to it so that even the zolifad's daughters they also have the vow, and every female that follows them as time goes on has the same responsibility. Again, the trustworthiness of Zelophehad and all those daughters, as well as many generations later, the trust that the dad has and his daughters, whoever that will be, whatever the names in fill in the blanks, that they will obey and follow. I'll still follow suit and follow this agreement. I will not deviate. So, the dad is trusting the vow that he's making with his daughters that was made could be thousands of years earlier, or hundreds of years earlier with Zelophehad, he's trusting that vow will still hold. Every daughter will follow this vow, this example given. It's all based upon trust, which where Jeremiah comes in, which is such a frustration he had with Judah and Jerusalem. Now, if you go through Jeremiah, obviously we uh, uh, he covered part of it, chapter two, but with Jeremiah, this lack of trustworthiness is devastating to a society and to God. Not like him personally, but as far as what he wants for us. It's devastating. So in Jeremiah, I mentioned earlier, he covers a whole lot of chapters. He covers the first, I think it's like 10, whatever it is. Some of the chapters, he discovers this lack of trustworthiness with inside the people of Judah. Now, Jeremiah is interesting is that he points out there are two sisters. There's Israel and then Judah. He categorizes them separately. So, he points out the sister Israel being the northern tribes, they were corrupt, evil, wicked, everything bad about them. So, they were wicked. They worshiped their harlots. They slept around, adulterer, whatever it was. He says, Judah, you're also wicked. There is no real difference, except this is a profound difference. Jeremiah points to these two daughters, I mean, these two types of people. Judah lies about it and Israel didn't. <laughs> and he said, forget you, God. I like these other dudes, all these other balls. I, I, I like balls. <laughs> Lots of balls. Many of them. Balim. <laughs> How many Balim can I have? More, more, more gods, I'll take them. I don't need you, God. You're worthless. I want these. And God's through Jeremiah is saying, this Israel is more righteous than Judah, because Judah said, oh, no, no, no. I only follow God. I follow the ball on the side. <laughs> I not, but 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 you can't prove that I hide it. I'm really following God. The honesty is more honest in Israel, the northern tribe that was in Judah, even though it's both about wickedness, but evil activity, because the vow matters. Your words matter. In Israel, they actually have more honesty because they were honest in their words. Their words meant something to them. They said what they meant. They said, "God, screw you," (laughs) and they meant it. (laughs) Okay. And Judah said, "Oh no, no, God, I love you. I love you. I love you." But backside, no, no, screw (laughs) you. this direction. They didn't mean it. So, so even in even in your corruptness, which is just mind-boggling, with inside of our corruption, honesty with inside corruption, God still respects, which is just mind-blowing at times. But He does. So within corruption. You can be honest and corrupt, <laughs> and then you can be dishonest and corrupt, and Judah was in fact dishonest and corrupt, all because of their words, their actions and words didn't match, their agreements they, they agreed to, they didn't follow suit with. So, it tells us that how important are our words to God, even in our own wickedness, how important are our words to God. So much so, he said, Judah, I'm destroying you, Israel, although they already got wiped out previously, but. He said, I'll bring them back. Judah, you got some serious problems to work out. I, I, there's nothing, nothing good about you. The whole, the whole city, the whole tribe. And I say Judah specifically because in and in, in Jeremiah 6, uh chapter 6, he tells Benjamin, Ben, who's hanging out inside Judah's territory, get out. Not Judah. <laughs> Judah, you stay. <laughs> Benjamin run. Judah, stay. <laughs> so he points out that says, um, it's it's really a particular people group within inside that he's really mad at, Benjamin. You know what? Hide, hide! Go to the hills, flee, get out. But Judah, no, you you stay there. I'm gonna I'm gonna army to crush you. But I'll be back, Benjamin. Hide, Judah. Don't go anywhere. Okay, I'm gonna kill you off because I want you to make sure you get you get the full the full brunt of this. So it, it, even even in that, it's like that's it's quite profound at the wickedness. And in in, with inside corruption, you still have this, this this level of honesty that God expects, which is just it, just, it blows my mind to think about it, but it's really what it is. A parent, exactly. A parent, I'd rather have my child not lie. Yeah, exactly. If, to be honest, just tell me the truth. I'd rather you not lie to me and try to conceal the truth. I can deal with and fix problems. Right, exactly. I don't even know what's true. It's no different than the how alcoholic anonymous thing, right? Admit you're an alcoholic. Now you can move forward. Don't keep lying about it. We have this problem, a drug addict, any kind of deviant per, uh, behavior. Admit it first, be honest, and now we can get past and grow past it. The, 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 this, this, this honesty thing matters regardless of the spectrum you're on, whether you could be wholly righteous and perfect and honest, or corrupt just next, hang out next to Satan honest. <laughs> it's kind of bizarre, but anyway, honesty matters. Be truthful with who, what you are, and now we can move forward and fix these issues and deal with these problems.